Hey, Carl here to say that Music to Code By is now an app called Music to Flow By. Now you can listen to the tracks on your phone with offline capability. The first three tracks are free, and the entire catalog is available by subscription with a new track arriving every month. Just go to musictoflowby.com for all the links. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're in different parts of the world today. I'm actually in Tuscany in Italy. Nice. Yeah. And I'm in uh, somebody's home. Uh, basically, my daughter, my, my first daughter, has been an au pair here uh, just outside Florence at a family and has been living with a family and speaking Italian for three months. And I came over on a sort of a little vacation to uh, stay with her and the family for a week. And then we're, we're coming home. Nice. So um, I just had some amazing wine, needless to say. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> You're in the right part of the world, man. Uh, it's beautiful. And uh, maybe I'll post a few pictures on, on Twitter or, or on the page just, just so that you can see how beautiful this place is. It's amazing. All right. Well, that's not what we're here to talk about. This is show 1500. Congratulations, my friend. Congratulations to you. Well, I've only done 1,400 of them. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still <laughs> only, a new guy. Only 1,400. <laughs> a mere 1,400. <laughs> well, it, it is really a good milestone. And as you know, listeners, we try to celebrate every 100 episodes with something um, a little out of the ordinary. And we thought it was a good time for Richard to talk about his history of .NET stuff. But first... We have this little matter of better know framework. Awesome. All right, man. What do you got? Uh, this is a uh, great blog uh, post uh, that was just done a f you know a couple of weeks ago um, from this recording, and it's entitled "I enlisted a free AI to troll email scammers. It was hilariously effective." <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, this is using technology for my amusement. Exactly. And, you know, we've talked about stuff like this before, but this is just really amazing. So, he starts by saying, email scammers are the scum of the earth and deserve forever itchy butts. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered if there was something I could do beyond just wishing them ill. And I'm happy to report I've now found a way to give them a dose of their own medicine. Rescam. <laughs> R-E-S-C-I-M, is an AI bot that sends authentic-sounding automated replies to Fisher's messages, tying them up in the process of chasing a lead. It works with Nigerian princes, deceased dukes, philanthropic trusts, and even lotteries you haven't entered, and it doesn't cost you a dime. To awesome. use it, just forward any scammy message to me at rescam.org, R-E-S-C-A-M.org, from your inbox, and sit, and sit back and watch the fun. <laughs> uh, Rescan will check if the email is indeed fraudulent and then proceed to reply with a message that sounds like it could have come from a real person. <laughs> nice. I tried it by sending myself a notice from a separate address to collect $10 million from a lucky draw and Rescam got the case in a couple of days. And then he posts the conversation and... You know, you can imagine what it is, but 
this person was very interested in the responsiveness that he got out of Rescam. I bet. The original uh, email says, hey, you just won a huge prize. Enter your name and bank account details in a reply to collect $10 million right away, exclamation mark. Now, we're, we're about to give away, you know, real soon here, a $5,000 technology shopping spree, which isn't, isn't a scam. It's totally right. legit. <laughs> but we always, <laughs> in the back of our mind, we always have that, you know, that doubt that somebody's going to think we're scammers. So, the re-scam uh, bot writes back, this isn't a joke, is it? I don't remember entering in this thing, but maybe my girlfriend did it. This is the first good luck I've had since I beat the other semen to the egg. <laughs> Who got second? <laughs> what information do you need? How should I send it? <laughs> so, this is, like, this is like throwing chum in the water, you know? Yeah. Like a, a, a burlap bag full of dead fish heads and all the eels come come attacking <laughs> it. So, anyway, it is hilarious and I, I suggest you read the post. And just go to 1500.pwop.me to read the entire post and uh, enjoy that. Awesome. So, who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off of show 1000. Wow. Because, you know, milestone shows. That was a good show, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah that was June of 2014. So, mm. you know, time flies. And that was the one where we uh, we had John Schofield on the show. Yeah, that was great. And you blew poor, uh, poor uh, Jason Olson's mind with that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, uh, here's he, John Schofield. I think he's still mad at me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Jason. He was a good sport, though, actually. But I will read a fun comment from that show that uh, I think sums up a lot of people's thoughts. Uh, Dear Carl and Richard, a thousand shows. Holy crap. I got on this train around show 100 when it was WMA files from the MSDN site. And I've been listening ever since. I've grown so much as a developer, a professional and as a person because of the things and the people you've introduced me to on the show. There's a clear line that I can draw through the center of my life as a developer before and after .NET Rocks. Wow. The contributions that you and your guests have made to my career are immeasurable. Hmm. It's the joy of discovery that makes being a developer so compelling for me. And I know from years of listening to you guys that you feel the same way. You've brought a mix of curiosity, humor, and humanity to a profession that isn't always known for these things. You pick good topics, find interesting guests, and interview them well. The love you put into the show shines through right down to the quality of the audio. Yeah, great. Yeah, you're the friends that I've had with me on countless bus trips, flights, and bike rides, and you've broadened my horizons. You've changed the way I code. You've opened my mind, and you've made me laugh out loud. It's been one of my greatest joys of my life the past 10 years to explore the path you guys have led me on. I can't wait to see where it leads next. Thanks for everything. And that is from Brian Seabacher. Awesome, Brian. Yeah. So, Brian, thank you so much for your kind words. We really have a ton of fun making the shows, and just keep on doing it. So 500 shows later, I think your comment's still super appropriate and a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. We retweet surreal anagrams of them. <laughs> do we can we write a bot for that i think we need to because i can only do so many surreal anagrams can you imagine that bot 
<laughs> retweeting. Yes, Sri I can. <laughs> <laughs> I want to write that. That's all right. We're stopping recording right now. We got to make a bot. <laughs> yeah, we'll be right back in a couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, my God. Yep. Well, this isn't really a geek out show because it's about .NET, but... You've hinted on several .NET Rock shows that you're working on a book yes. and a presentation that you've already done a couple of times. Done a few. On the history of .NET. And, uh, you know, that makes it almost sound not exciting, but the history of, of where C-sharp as a language has gone, VB as a language, the, the runtime has gone, is full of drama. And, and sure. we decided that this was... Uh, a good opportunity for you to share it with us. Well, and it, you know, here we are, episode fifteen hundred. It's just a little over fifteen years since yeah. .NET one shipped, right? Which is really what got me inspired to start working on this thing in the first place. Was I went to the party, the Microsoft Alumni Party, in February? Yeah, and met with a bunch of the old timers, and we were celebrating fifteen years of .NET. Right. And our friend Beth Massey asked me to do some interviews. And I'll, I'll include links to them, but they're all on Channel 9. And they were little five-minute nuggets with all of these luminaries about building .NET and the things that they did. And I came out of it very inspired to think, you know, we should write this down. Somebody's got to write mm. this down. I'd, I'd rather mm. read it than have to write it, but it, I'm kind of in a good spot to write it all down. I know the people, and it's certainly a, a passion of mine. And if you think about it, the history of .NET lives inside of all these .NET Rocks episodes, too. Hey, I was just going to say that. I mean, we know so many of these people. You have, you know, friendships with the people you have you you're closer friends to a lot of these guys than I am. I see them at conferences. You go down to Microsoft, you know, once a month and have lunch with them. Sure, no, and they come up to my place, and you know, like we've, we've become friends over the years. Yeah, right. So yes, I agree. You are the right person to chronicle this, and you know, you don't work for Microsoft. Never You've have got that experience of of hearing the whole story in series as it happened, documented it. And, uh, you know, and, and you can write, I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> How about I can tell a story? Well, that's so, true. Yeah. That much we know for sure. And, yeah. and it is a challenge for me, too, because many of the folks that are part of this history have been friends of mine for years. And so yeah. you want to be respectful of the, the private things they've said to, to you as well as tell the story well. But as the gestalt, as this sort of sense that this story should be told has come out a lot of things have been coming at me too. So I, yeah. I feel the energy of there's a story waiting to be told. Uh, and yeah. so I've been, that's why I started writing things down and doing talks just to test different aspects of the history to see what resonates with people. And you also are kind of walking a tightrope, aren't you? Because you have on the one hand, the the Microsoft Corporation, which, you know, has their things that they want to people to remember and not remember. <laughs> sure. And uh, then you have the experiences of the people that were involved in bringing all this stuff to life. And in some cases, you know, having products canceled and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's all of those things are going to come up. Yeah. You also have conflicting memories. Hmm. You know, we are talking about going back a long way. So it, not everybody remembers things the same way. And trying to resolve that into a coherent narrative, it's not an easy thing to do. Now, when you started interviewing these people, and, and just so that everybody knows, Richard has been going to 
meet people in person and interview them, not for a recording, but just so that he has notes that he can process. And yeah. did you, and, and some of these people shared things that you didn't expect. No, that I, certainly that's the case. And I, I do think uh, in some respects, it's just good to be able to talk to someone. Um, let's call it uh, therapy. Yeah. You know, or, or, or a little bit of confessional to just be able to talk about this, some of this stuff going way back and decisions made and maybe, you know, some hindsight has taken effect. And it, uh, part of me is just trying to figure out what the right narrative is. Like what, what is the right story to tell? How do I yeah. best present this? Uh, you know, titles are important and I don't know that I'm going to call it the history of dot net. Right. There's a bigger picture here and I don't know that I know what it is yet. And I like that. I mean, mm. the same way that I write geek outs, I, I like when the story emerges. And even though we've lived it and recorded up 1,500 shows about it, mm. I don't know that I know what that is yet. Well, yeah. And there certainly is a general story. I mean, if you wanted to sum up the entire 15 years, you could say .NET started out as a way to let Windows programmers program Windows and to attract more people to Windows programming, it was all about the Windows operating system, to then, you know, and, and at the same time, being about the web, which was really only about Windows web, IIS. And where we are today is it's an open source, C-sharp is an open source language, you know, VBNet, uh, you know, certainly the .NET core framework is open, and it runs on Linux, and it runs on the Mac, and it runs on you know, little Raspberry Pis and it yeah. runs everywhere. And it's just becoming more and more open. Yeah. I mean, we know where we've gotten to. We just kind of, how did we get here? It's kind yeah. of a surprise, really, uh, because it certainly was the intent. And I, I, the more I've dug into this, the more I've realized nobody set out to make .NET. They yeah. were all each trying to solve separate problems at the same time. And For example, they ran into each other. So uh, when I talk about sort of the three main forces around .NET, the first was a conflict between runtimes. So if you go back to the early, the middle 90s, the successful development tools that Microsoft's making, the ones that are making the money are C++ and Visual Basic. Right. Right. And by 97, they'll try and start consolidating them into Visual Studio. But even before then, what you have is two completely separate runtimes, both sitting on top of Windows. And everybody has an opinion one way or the other about which is better or worse. Mm -hmm. But the larger issue here is that they're duplicating a whole bunch of effort. Two right. separate runtimes. And there are more runtimes because at the same time, uh, coming into 97, 98, Microsoft starts building a version of Java called J++. Right. And the, and the man leading that project is Anders Halsberg. Yeah. That's what he was originally hired to do at Microsoft was to build a version of Java. So as the number of runtimes is increasing, there is a team that's saying, can we build a consolidated or common runtime? Common to languages. Common language runtime. A common language runtime so that you can have multiple languages, but one runtime because runtimes are expensive to maintain. So why have multiple ones? And and it was really obvious in the er if you go back and listen to the early shows in, of .NET Rocks that, you know, they they took a lot of uh, cues from Java. They looked at Java. I mean, I we talked to Don Box. Don says, 
you know, they looked at Java as a successful, you know, not common language, but an abstraction layer, the JVM being an abstraction layer, bytecode, right? And so they wanted to do something similar. In other words, have that two-step compilation process, but just, you know, do it differently. And what they thought was, you know, improve on it. Well, and the key difference here is the reason that that Java had a two-step runtime is because it had different platforms underlying it. So you had a right. common language that compiled to multiple platforms. And Microsoft right. was looking at a different way, which is that that's the pitch line. And I found a bunch of the old marketing materials from 2002, and they're hilarious. But it's 22 languages, one platform. So they were they were turning it on its head. I remember that they said in one presentation, somebody said, and I can't remember who it was. So what languages run in Visual Studio? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> and all, all of them is a stretch, but a lot. And, and whether or not they mattered is another question entirely. So yeah. three forces taking place that eventually consolidate to become what .NET. One is the runtime. The mm. second is the language issue. So yeah. we love Visual Basic. We, you know, you and I made a lot of money off of Visual Basic. Yes, but we Visual did. Basic was not a pure object-oriented language by any stretch of the imagination. No, no, barely. And, my, and Microsoft didn't really have one. C++ is its own approach to objects with its right. strengths and, and weaknesses. But they were looking for a more object-oriented approach. Mm-hmm. And they did take on Java. They started developing Java. The problem is that if you think back to 97... Microsoft's operating mar- operating system market share is like 95%. It is so yeah. incredibly dominant mm. that as soon as they start building a version of Java to run that op- is optimized for Windows, they run into Sun Microsystems' intentions for Java, that they didn't mm. want a version optimized for Windows. They wanted to be able to write once and run across all these platforms. But mm. once you introduce Windows to the mix, because it's so big, it's like, why would we bother? Let's just focus on Windows. And so what's funny is that going back and reading these original materials, they signed this deal where Microsoft's going to be heavily involved in the design of Java. And at the same time, Microsoft's going to be compliant with the current Java standards. And both teams break those requirements Within days. Yeah. And so, <laughs> it, you know, the, the Java relationship wasn't going to last. It did. It broke mm. down almost immediately. There's an argument that Microsoft should have sued uh, Sun. Sun certainly did sue Microsoft. And so within two years of the effort to develop Java for Windows with Anders, uh, there's a lawsuit in place. And Anders has to can't, can't continue to develop it. And, and Anders does two things. One is that he starts developing a new language from scratch based on what he's learned so far. And we'll eventually call that C sharp but he also builds a tool called j sharp yep and j sharp is a bridge for his j plus plus developers to be able to move to c sharp but there's two things that are needed there there is the new language and there is a new runtime so the runtime's Mm -hmm. going is going to initially they didn't have a dependency like that java was running on its own runtime now they had to build a new one anders was also a firm believer in the concept of base class libraries and if you think back to the early 90s, we as developers had to pick a set of libraries we were going to use when we went to build a project. You not only picked a language and an operating system, but you also built a, a tool set. They were not all together. It was sort of mix and match. And he thought that it made sense for the language team themselves to also build a set of base class libraries so that there was a consistent set of tools available for that language. Yeah. The one, the third force was the web. 
Mr. Guthrie. Now, Microsoft in this time, in the middle 90s, is still playing the catch-up game, right? They are trying to figure out how to make the web really work on the Windows platform. Bill had put out his famous internet tidal wave letter in 1995. Mm. And they were scrambling to build tooling to actually be able to use the Microsoft stack to build good web pages. And, you know, in Studio 97, the very first version of Studio, you also had the first version of a product called InterDev, uh, which was not a wildly successful product for building web pages, but it was Mm. tooling for that. You also have in that same time span as part of the Office team, front page over Brad Silverberg's work. So Microsoft is feeling around for a way to build web tech. And this is where our dear friend Scott Guthrie comes into play. Because Scott is a brand new employee to Microsoft out of Duke University. And his first job, essentially, working with a guy named Mark Anders, also Mm -hmm. under David Treadwell, uh, was to ship the NT option pack as part of Studio 98. So the second version of Studio had an terrible name, NT Option Pack. But what it really was, was IIS 4. And IIS had had active server pages for a while. And this was an update to active server pages that was part of that. And they shipped Studio 98 in November of 98. And it was very normal for a big team like that to take a couple of weeks off after they ship. And since it was December, that ran right into Christmas. So for the most part, the team took the better part of December off. And I'm still validating some of these things. This is a bit apocryphal. But Mr. Guthrie, being a very young man at the time, didn't want to take the time off. Instead, what he did was pour his heart and soul into a prototype to go beyond ASP. In fact, he even called it ASP+. Yeah, right. Right. And what he was trying, what, what was he trying for? He was trying for a better development environment for web development that worked with the existing tools, but he wanted a better language. He didn't like working in scripting languages. He really wanted a full-fledged language. And the la- only object-oriented language that Microsoft had available to them at that time was Java. It was J++. And if you hold that thought for just one minute, we'll take a few minutes just to hear a word from my sponsor. Hey, Rockheads, this is Carl. Have you tried JetBrains Rider? It's a new cross-platform .NET IDE that's light yet powerful and comes from the makers of ReSharper, IntelliJ, IDEA, and WebStorm. You can write .NET code on Windows, Mac, or Linux. Rider has you covered. Rider helps you develop ASP.NET, .NET Core, .NET Framework, Xamarin, and Unity applications. Most languages used in .NET development are supported. From C-sharp, VB.net, F-sharp, and XAML, to ASP.NET Razor syntax, JavaScript, TypeScript, and all that other front-end stuff. It comes with navigation, thousands of code inspections, refactorings, unit testing, debugging, rich coding assistance, and more advanced IDE features powered by proven technology from ReSharper and WebStorm. Download Rider now and take it for a 30-day trial at rider.com. .netrocks.com. That's R-I-D-E-R dot D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S dot com. And we're back. It's .net Rocks. It's show 1500. Richard's talking about the history of .net, whatever the title may be. At some time, <laughs> we're hearing some fascinating stories here. Um, just before we move on with ASP+, uh, an interesting story for you. Uh, in 1996, I published a book with John Wiley and Sons called Visual Basic Internet Programming. Right. 
And I focused on client-side protocols like FTP, um, HTTP, NNTP, which was for news groups. I don't know if you remember Gopher. Like yeah, sure. These were the protocols of the day that were all happening. And um, I had a friend inside Microsoft, John Roskill. Do you remember John? Sure. So he was a fan of Carl and Gary's VB homepage, which had been out for a couple of years. And, and he was helping me with stuff that we could do on that page. And I asked him because he had access to Bill, if Bill would like to write the foreword for my book. 1996. Yeah. Guess what Bill said? I don't think so. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, because <laughs> if you think about what was going on in Bill Gates' head in 1996, he's like, oh, crap, the internet. Right? <laughs> 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 well, and I found I found on Amazon your VB4 internet programming book. Like there it is. Yeah. VB4 yeah. 1996. Yeah, and I did another one for VB6. And by the way, if you ever want to write a book that has a 2-month lifespan of sales, write a <laughs> put a version of a language in it. <laughs> yeah, that'll do it for you for sure. Yeah. But uh I after that, I actually considered for about 5 minutes writing the forward myself and saying forward by Bill Gates. And it would say, hi, my name is Bill Gates. I'm a wheat farmer in Topeka, Kansas. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about this internet stuff, but I like Carl and he's a good guy. So you should buy this book. But I, did, <laughs> I didn't do that. Yeah, that might've got a cease and desist. I'm just guessing. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't <laughs> think I was on anybody's radar back then. But, no. but it, it is an interesting story that, you know, they were sort of scrambling to, you know, the, the internet took them by surprise, Microsoft. Yeah. They, they, I mean, they've been working hard on sort of the interactive TV concept with cable because mm. the internet was so irregular. It was sort of slapdash between universities and so forth. They, you know, there was every reason as an architect type thinker to look at the internet and go, that's just a pile of debris. It'll never amount to anything. And it was a Silicon Valley academic thing, right? I mean, right. Yeah, so that was not the Microsoft world. And to this day, you know, Microsoft and Silicon Valley kind of live in different worlds. They're, they're closer now, but uh, back then they certainly weren't. Certainly struggle with each other. But, the, and they, the, you know, Microsoft also had good people like Silverberg inside of the company that were part of the early ARPANET and so forth and got it. But yeah. Microsoft's a big entity. It took time to push back and forth on these things. And there were lots of different threads moving at once. Right. So when Guthrie, you know, January of of ninety eight shows off or ninety nine shows off this prototype, they're like, "Wow, that's really cool. Mm. We like the sort of object oriented development model and so forth." You got to get rid of the Java. Yeah. Which fine, you know, that's that's to be expected. But the, mm -hmm. these are the the kernel pieces that begin yeah. what will eventually become .NET. Now, there's another huge thing going on, which is the 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 Department of Justice antitrust uh, trial and, and cases going on literally at the same time. So right. at the senior leadership level, things are changing. Yep. Uh, we remember the switch from Bill Gates to Steve Ballmer as a very abrupt thing. Yeah, sure. But as I've dug deeply into the research, there was a gradual transition going on. 
And part of it was that the struggle of Microsoft to get the internet under their belt, to understand what the internet could really do for them and how they should de- best deal with it was taking up more and more of Bill's time. And so mm. it made sense to start carving off some of his responsibilities as CEO over to Steve Ballmer. Mm-hmm. So that actually started a, a year and a half, two years before he was actually called CEO. That wow. Bill was focusing more on that chief architectural role. But the announcement in the beginning of 2000 of Bill becoming the chief architect and uh, Steve doing all the CEO duties, you know, we, we thought of it on the outside as a sudden thing, but it had been in the works for a while. It, it, yeah. it was a logical transition that was going on. And it, yep. and it doesn't help that no. the Department of Justice was also had just declared Microsoft a predatory monopoly. And yeah. the judge had ruled that Microsoft should be broken up into two companies, an operating system company and an everything else company. And the interesting thing about that whole era was that Microsoft had government contracts. Like, they were using Windows. Oh, of course. Every, everybody was. That, that, everybody that was, was using Windows. And, and I, I remember hearing Bill, after he came back from Washington, saying, I really should have spent more time in D.C. Sure. And, and you know, that really is telling because that doesn't mean that, you know, what he th- he thinks their ruling is fair. He called it what it was. It was a political move. Yeah. And and it went exacerbated by his own behavior. Uh, yep. There were a number of opportunities for them to find a better outcome than what uh, had happened, but mm. it didn't work out that way. And, you know, right. the good news is this, is this ends well, but yeah. an incredibly stressful time for the company. And in some ways, Steve Ballmer is a better personality for dealing with that battle than Bill was. Yeah, right. Steve Bomb, you know, you and I have met Steve at an yep. RD thing. He's a bombastic, right. enthusiastic, just a real powerhouse personality. He is fun. He's really interesting. And Bill is shy and reserved most of the time unless yeah. he's yelling at people in boardrooms. <laughs> my, my, yeah, and other than yelling internal to the company out in the world, he's kind of a quiet guy. Yeah. So by the time you get to two, the first time that Microsoft admits anything like .NET is in 2000 after Steve is CEO. Mm. But they're also still in the process of the discussion, the the appeal around not breaking up Microsoft, which they know they'll ultimately win. They don't break up Microsoft. And Mm. so one of the reasons that you see them approach this new development environment, and they started out calling it next generation Windows services. NGWS. That's right. But that then became next generation web services as they wanted to make it more open. Yeah. And so at the PDC in Orlando in 2000 is the first time they talked publicly about .NET. And Mm. it blindsided a lot of people because we had been on a cadence for a while of new tools every year. You know, 97 and 98, there was new operating, 95 had come out, now 98, 98 SE. And so it had been a quiet year. And then, boom, hey, we have a whole new development platform. And the tagline was a new platform based on internet standards. Yep. It was all about web services. For sure. And they also published, they said they were going to publish the specification for C-sharp and the specification for the common language infrastructure, the CLI, as ECMA specifications. Yeah. So just for those who don't know, ECMA is an open standards committee, right? Yes. And so when they say they wanted to publish it as an ECMA specification, that means that how they did it with a reference architecture is, is there 
but it isn't necessarily an open source project. Not at all. And, and you know, one of the complaints, and I talked to Miguel Diaz about this, because Miguel worked from the ECMA specifications to do the first version of Mono within a right. year of the thing shipping. Yes. And also, if you remember, uh, people, Microsoft published the reference architecture of the CLR called Rotor. That is two years later. Yeah, it was a separate reference, and Miguel did not use that as no. the basis of Mono. He he wrote it all from scratch. But that's because he was already too far down the path. And he also didn't want it, he didn't want to be tainted by, you know, using their code. He didn't even look at it. It didn't need to. Yeah. But as Microsoft was putting out bits, they were in file formats that they didn't understand, and mm. the specification didn't include the file formats at all. So, it ah. was challenging to use this stuff even though it was out there yeah interesting now there's a couple other forces going on in 2000 that are kind of a big deal i mean one was the whole end of the world thing where we, you know i was making a lot of money fixing banking <laughs> yeah. apps right because 2000 was coming up but this is also when windows 2000 comes right. along which is really where they're trying to consolidate the the 9x line and the nt mm -hmm. line and one would argue whether they really pull it off with 2000 there's a bunch of stuff that still didn't yeah. work but 2000 was a very important version. It's the first version of Windows that put TCP IP as their primary stack. Yeah. Their networking stack. Yeah. Before that, it was just one of many. Yep. It's also the time when the first Pentiums hit with gigahertz processing yeah. speeds. Powerful time. Yeah, but still early on. You know, we're just trying to get mm. those things together. And in 2000, those were all announcements with some beta bits. The shipping bits won't show up until October of 2001 at the PDC in Los right. Angeles. At this point, Miguel's already announced the Mono project. He did that earlier in, in 2001 at an O'Reilly mm -hmm. conference. Uh, IE6 is also released in this time frame. Right. Which is kind of a big deal. Uh, we get the release candidates XP ships yep. with its tablet toolkit, by the way, if anybody remembers. Yep. And uh, they also announced this .NET My Services code Hailstorm. named Hailstorm. Right. Right. And uh, let's just take a break here because you know what? Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is now. It must be that happy time again. Yes. It's time to build a bridge between flat, inert jokes and really cheesy jokes. It's called Extra Sharp. <laughs> And it oh also could goodness. be called stanky cheese, I suppose, but uh, or stanky <laughs> jokes, maybe. Stanky cheese jokes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's also time to give away a de-experience subscription from our friends at DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. And check out their DevExtreme React grid. Built from the ground up to fully support all the cool features that come with React, like the virtual DOM and state controllers like Redux. It supports master detail, sorting, grouping, paging, and editing. And you can check it out and test it for free on GitHub. And learn more and download your free 30-day trial of DevExpress Universal at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? 
Today's winner of show 1500 is Russell Gove. Congratulations, Russell. Golf clap for you, sir. It's G-O-V-E. I'm not sure if it's Gove, Gove, or Gove. It could be a bunch of things. The English language is kind of strange. But Russell, no matter what, you win the D-Experience subscription just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And hey, if you don't know what that is, go to .NET Rocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December... You know what it is. We give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club, but you got to sign up to win. And that date is coming right up on, when is it, Richard? December 14th. December 14th. That's when we're going to announce the winner. So you got to get your entry in before then. Uh, yeah, let's go back to Hailstorm. What I remember about Hailstorm in that time, and Hailstorm was my services. They were a bunch of services that, you know, Microsoft was selling access to. So this was, I guess you could call it a SaaS offering. It was sort of like a software as a service offering, but only in the form of web services. And uh, there was the, the, the big one was the, the credit card service, like the authorization service that they had. Yeah. Right. And the whole idea was that you would put your credit cards in their data centers and in Azure, uh, Actually, it wasn't even Azure then, was it? It was just their no, data centers. .NET and services, yeah. .NET services, yeah. And and then you could just, you know, refer to them with some sort of security token. The problem was at the same time, and correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, but I remember that at the same time, they were going through some security crises about being oh, yeah. hacked and bugs like that. And so I don't think the public was quite confident enough to put their trust in in Hailstorm. Well, oh, I think it had a double whammy. You had the the DOJ suit, yeah. right? That they were they were a predatory monopoly. Yeah. And I actually grabbed a list of the viruses from 2001. Yeah. So in February 2001, the Anacornicova virus. Yeah. In July of 2001, the Code Red Worm that attacked IIS. And these were all Internet Explorer 6 and IIS exploits, right? Uh, there's also the the um, the Nimda worm, the, or there's the Slimer virus that went through SQL Server. Yeah. Like these were it, part of this is this is a byproduct of Bill's rush to get Microsoft onto the internet. I Meant they built a whole bunch of internet tech really fast. Yeah, and it wasn't particularly secure. Right, and it has a huge impact on on .NET because it's the setup for the Longhorn crisis. Yep. And I also do remember talking to friends who had a lot of experience in the Unix world saying, you know, it's obvious that Microsoft doesn't talk a lot to uh, Unix people because they're, they have a lot of the same problems that Unix had growing pains wise sure. and they didn't learn from them. Yeah, and, you know, the, true. it's a totally different story today, of course. I mean, you know, they've heck, they've, they've got some of the best minds in the world from the Unix world working on everything that they're doing. So, But that starts after XP ships mm-hmm. when Bill puts out in January 2002, still .NET hasn't shipped yet, the yeah. trustworthy computing letter, just like he did the right. Internet Tidal Wave letter. Now he puts out this trustworthy computing letter yeah. where he wants everyone to focus on security in a big way. Yep. And that's what creates XP SP2. Service Pack 2. Yeah, Windows XP right? Service Pack 2. That's what uh, 
was the fire the windows firewall was the first thing yeah all uac yeah. all of that UAC, stuff comes in there user but think control. about what it does to microsoft itself so he puts out xp is already shipped it shipped in november of 2001 Mm. The service pack one is already being set up because it's all the stuff that didn't make the ship date, right? Right. That's why it ends up being service pack two. But because it's such an important update to Windows, that Windows is the linchpin to improving security across the board, mm. the Windows team focuses, the vast majority of them, the most experienced people get focused on that service pack. Yeah. And so the team to build the next version of Windows is missing a lot of people. So you right. split the Windows team, right? One team trying to fix that service pack, build that yep. service pack and solve that security problem. It's not a it's not a typical service pack. I mean, one would argue Microsoft should not have called it a service pack. They should yeah. have called it XP version two. They should have, yeah. Or some Because other it was a breaking of, yeah. change to Windows. Yes, it was, yeah. Right? And there's a reason they didn't do that. They wanted everybody to install it. The service packs are less threatening, so they're right. more likely to install it if they call it a service pack. Yeah. But finally, you know, the letter comes out in two th in January of 2002. The product itself, uh, .NET, ships in February of 2002, which is why we celebrated the 15th anniversary when we did. That's right. And that was the 22 languages, one platform. Can mm. you name 22 languages? No, but I just remember I was introduced to things like Haskell and Erlang and uh prologue and all these other languages that uh, i think even that there was a lisp.net there was cobalt.net there were things in that list that i had no idea what they were yeah yeah that you're totally true totally true there was a version of haskell and a version of ocaml, ocaml. Uh, eiffel which i got a giggle yeah. about uh i've gone back and checked to see which ones of these are still being built there is a cobalt.net to this day mm -hmm. the reason you don't hear much about them is that they you have to buy them yeah. But they're in the Visual Studio gallery. There's also a right. version of Fortran. IBM continues to make a Fortran.net. That's awesome. So, you know, the, the diversity of languages is still there. Yeah. It just, it, not 22. It's niche. If, without a doubt. Yeah. So, if you talk about the original vision of .NET, the first three versions, so 2002, two, uh, 2003, and 2005. Mm-hmm. Those are the versions, uh, I would argue, that ASP.NET 2.0 or .NET 2.0 in 2005 manifests the original vision of what .NET was about. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, Microsoft is trying to rehabilitate its image. Right. Right. The fallout of being a monopolist, the successful negotiation of the consent decree that stopped them from being broken up, but still angered a lot of people. Mm. I mean, these are all the forces politically that are working around Microsoft at the same time. And yeah. they're also trying to fix the security problem, right? Yep. It, which took them way longer than they thought it would take. Right. Uh, and while building out this new version of studio and, and, and trying to get things better. Uh, and I, I'm going to largely skip over 1.1 because it just wasn't a lot in 1.1 that's right. usually crucial. Yeah, yeah. In 2005 with the, with 2.0, yeah, we do get a lot. That's when the .NET gets dropped from Visual Studio. It's just called Visual Studio now. We get right. C Sharp 2.0, which has generics and partial classes, anonymous types. Mm. It's also the point where we get the first 64-bit support. Yep. I remember that show that we did on 64-bit with a, a lot of the high uh, the tech fellows and the executives. Yeah, it, it was a very powerful time. But it, this is also the era of Robert Scoble. 
Right. Right. Microsoft's move to be more visible. The whole Channel 9 phenomenon is Mm. a result of that uh, monopolistic thing. Right. It's like, look, we want to show you that we're people because they are without a doubt. It's just it was easy to, you know, make it Microsoft with the dollar sign. And so going around and showing you developers that are building the product. Hmm. Was really about how they 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 sort of changed the, tried to change those minds and at PDC in 03, a side effect of that was that they presented Windows Longhorn years yeah. before it was ready in an effort to be more open. They showed us showed us stuff that just wasn't ready. No, nope, it wasn't, and and that was part of the problem. That was a very very fun PDC for me, um, and oh, for sure. a lot of us. You know, we were very bullish on Longhorn. We thought it was great. But that's when Miguel de Acaza was, uh, how shall I say, romanced by Don Box, uh, who wanted to hire <laughs> him. Wooed. He was wooed by Don Box, who wanted to hire him. And of course, you know, he had just signed with Novell and uh, was being hired by them. But he hadn't quite moved over yet. And uh, Don was, you know, he said, it's not a matter of if Miguel comes to work for Microsoft, but a matter of when. And Don and I were in a band called Band on the Runtime, in which we did all these parody songs, uh, parodying.net, actually. And one of them was Miguel, sung to the tune of Michelle by the Beatles, in which I played guitar and Don sang with a rose to Miguel on top of the standard in Los Angeles during PDC 03. And there is a video out there. And let me tell you something. It is funny. (laughs) <laughs> it is funny. And I, I was there. I, 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 when I found out that, uh, <laughs> that, you know, Microsoft bought Xamarin, I uh, got on Skype and I texted uh, Miguel and I, get, and I just said two words, Don wins. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but what an interesting time that was. Oh, without a doubt, and 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 all part of the, all of those forces were taking uh, taking place at the same time, right? And it's it's part of the challenge of starting this out. It's just this realization that there's so many things moving at once. Absolutely, uh, and and that's you know the overcommit on Longhorn was simply that they were experimenting. Now, I mean, Windows at this time is still wildly dominant in the ecosystem, so yeah. it was a good time to experiment and to try and sort of push the bar forward of what could an operating system be. Right. And it's interesting to realize to recognize that Longhorn was a dialed-back version of their original plan. So the code okay. name for XP was Whistler. Yeah. And Whistler being a mountain, you know, not far from where I live. Mm. The next mountain over is called Blackcomb. Yep. And the original proposed next version of Windows was codenamed Blackcomb. And it was object-oriented top to bottom. And it mm. was complex enough that they backed off on that. Yeah, They just said, like, we're never going to get this built. we got to take an intermediary step. Mm. And sitting between the mountains of Whistler and Blackcomb is a bar <laughs> yeah, called, called the Longhorn bar. bar. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. And so we never saw Black Home out in the wild. I'm pretty sure there was a couple of SDRs on it, mm. but it never went out in, into public in any way. But Longhorn did. And even mm. Longhorn was wildly ambitious with Avalon and Arrow and Indigo and WinFS. Yeah. So Indigo became WCF. 
and Avalon became WPF. But right. again, that was not the intention. The intention yeah. was all of these things would be part of, of Windows. And mm. I mean, part of what went wrong here is that Service Pack 2 took a long time. It did right. not ship until August of 2004. Right. So they worked on it for two and a half years yeah. to get a Service Pack done. Yeah. And so that slows the whole Windows team down as right. they now got to go back and try and build what they mean to build. Yep. And the the end result of that is Vista. Eventually, yes. Yeah. We will we the, the crisis around Vista will come from there. But at mm. the same time, they finally start uh, they build a new version of Internet Explorer. Mm. So IE6 had come out in uh, October of 2001. Right. Much of that team, like, why was there such a big gap? IE7 wouldn't come out until October of 2006. So, five-year gap yeah. between versions of browsers. And one of the big reasons is that a lot of that team worked on Avalon. Yeah. You think about what XAML is. It's oh, a rendering system. It's And the amazing. best rendering guys that worked for Microsoft, they worked on that IE team. That's yep. where they were. But it was time for a new browser. I mean, what was evil about IE6 was that it had been shipped at a time when the CSS specification one hadn't even been ratified. Then they'd gone, at, they were ahead when they shipped it. And then it was the default operating system with XP and they hadn't replaced XP for years. Right. And so you get the situation where, you know, to IE6 something is to have a tech that is popular and not compliant with standards. Yeah. And that's what happened with IE6. So when IE7 finally comes along, they they show it off at the first Mix conference in 2006. That's yep. in March. Yep. That's also where they first mentioned WPFE. And in fact, we had a show around <laughs> that keynote with Brad Abrams. Brad Abrams, WPFE was eventually to become Silverlight. That's right. But that's the, the beginnings of all of those things happened there. Mm-hmm. And so, by November 2006, we finally get Vista. Yeah. Now, the only version of Vista that shipped in November 2006 was the Enterprise Edition, and that was because they had to be compliant with the volume license agreements. The version of Vista that would work for everybody else, the Home Edition, the Ultimate Edition, and so forth, would not come out until the following year. Right. Right, in, in May of 2007. Right. And in an effort to get that cleaned up, and again, we were there for a bunch of this. If you go back to August we 2004, there was the evangelism airlift in August 2004. That's when XPSP2 ships, when Jim Alchin takes over the Windows project, mm -hmm. and that's when they boot out Avalon Indigo and when, it, when FS disappears. Yeah. And they be, and they they put it onto the .NET team. Yeah. And so the .NET team now has to make a version of .NET, which just becomes 3.0, that deals with those new additions. Right. And Vista gets that stripped-down version that finally gets shipped out. Uh, unfortunately, the problems that existed in the Enterprise Edition. Now, you know, as an IT guy, mm -hmm. none of us were going to install Vista. Right. We are going to wait for Service Pack 1 because that's what IT guys do. So the problems that existed in that initial version of Vista should have impacted anybody. But the one group of people that did run that very first version of Vista were the reviewers. And they found the problems, and the problems were serious. And yep. so v by the time we have a version of Vista, for the time Service Pack 1 comes along, it has such a bad reputation, nobody wants to even touch it. Mm. And the crazy part is, a month later, when Vista's all fixed up, the iPhone ships. Yeah, right. The hits just keep on coming. Yeah, they sure do. <laughs> 
Now, the funny part is, of course, the first iPhone that came out was not that great a phone. It was 2G only, and it, it that's before the App Store when Jobs said, if you're going to program for the iPhone, you're going to program in Safari. Right. Because he was anticipating HTML5 well ahead of HTML5 being real. Right. And in a lot of respects, the phone sort of ends at that point. Every phone after that is a slab of flat, a black glass. They get bigger and smaller. But, right. you know, you remember before the iPhone when we had keyboards and pop-out antennas. Remember that one phone we had with the modular GSM antenna that we oh, used yeah. on the road trip? Yeah. Like, there's all this cool stuff. And all of that sort of ended after iPhone. It all became the same. Right. I do remember. I didn't get, I don't think I got one until the second version came out, but I did get one. Yeah. And it, yeah. and it you know, it changed phones. So yep. that's the middle of 2007. By the fall of 2007, Mr. Guthrie has his mojo going. And I, I've been trying to figure out exactly when he decided to start pushing the open source movement because yeah. he was clearly working on it for a while at this point. After right. that first mixed conference, it seems like he started to work on things like MVC. Although there's apocryphal stories about MVC appearing out of nowhere, it was going on for a while. Mm. But in October of 2007, he hires three people in the same month. Scott Hanselman, Phil Hack, and Rob Connery. Yep, that's right. And these the guys ninja army. become the ninja army of the open source movement within Microsoft. For sure. And, and obviously, Scott had been recruiting them for months. So that didn't happen all in, at once. But... In that same window is when they get the first version of Silverlight out. It's in September of 2007. And this is the V1, which was pretty limited, right? XAML barely exists. Your coding language is JavaScript. Uh, it's really about media playback, but it does run on the Mac, both the Intel and PowerPC versions, because right. they haven't consolidated over on Intel. Right. The other thing that, but that Guthrie does with Silverlight this time is he starts doing out-of-band updates. Right. You know, before this... Visual Studio shipped as a block and everybody yep. had the same versions of everything. You didn't really get separate installs. Yep. No, it's true. And that was before NuGet. So I remember being really frustrated because if you wanted to get the latest bits, you had to go out and search blogs and, you know, blog posts sometimes don't have dates on them. So you don't know when you see here's the latest bits of Silverlight or whatever, if they're actually the latest bits or if that sure. uh, post is, it, and it became absolutely frustrating. And that's when we did this uh, very uh, archetypal show, I think, called Has .NET Become Too Complex? I think we actually called it Has Software Development Gotten Too Complex? Yeah, you're right. You it know. was Software Development. But I mean, it, it revolved around our experiences, obviously. And, and just the whole complexity of versioning and out-of-band releasing and all of that, um, you, multiple stacks, and luckily, NuGet followed right after that. It did. And uh, that show was really interesting because it was a panel discussion. It was episode uh, four, 476. And uh, we, one of those panels that got away from us. Yeah, it, it was did. done in Nashville and, yep. and where the audience took over. Yep. It was just <laughs> I'm one looking of those, at you, Leon. <laughs> yeah, there was Leon raging away, but yeah. you know it was very. It was a, it was a powerful moment, I think, for us as a show. Yes, that uh, we were dealing with the downside to this out of band updating, which, which is they wanted to be able to move faster. They were already envisioning you yeah. know, the future that we're dealing with today, where there's there's updates every few weeks. But the difference is they're seamless; they just happen, and we don't have to worry about going getting them. Right. Well, and NuGet, that was Phil Hack who led that project. Yep. 
So, you know, all those all those forces sort of work together. The f- next real version of Studio was 2008. That was the one where they yeah. sort of cleaned up the stuff that came from Vista. We get Framework 3.5. Uh, we start getting into the designer models or working with a designer for WPF. Mm. It's also when Link arrives. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that that to me was a pretty compelling version. It had a it had a major uh, fix happen to it shortly after that, the CTP1. That, that was important to the equation. Yeah, sure did. And so now we have, these next couple of years are kind of fun years for the web in the in the Windows world, certainly. Right. Because at the same time that Silverlight starts to iterate. Yeah. And we get Expression Blend. Yep. September of 2008, the Chrome browser is announced. Yeah. They've got the mixed conferences going on. Mm. Miguel puts out the first version of Moonlight in early 2009. Which would become Xamarin. That well, Moonlight was the this the Silverlight equivalent, right? right. But he it does start looking at that platform portability piece yep. because he has to run it on the Mac. Yep, yep. By July of 2009, we have Silverlight three, which arguably is the definitive version. That's the point at which you suddenly have out of browser Mac and PC. All the controls are in place. You know, it's going to be improved from here, but it's pretty powerful stuff. I think it might have been Rory Blythe who said um, that Silverlight 1.0 was a glorified animated GIF player. Yes. <laughs> and he wasn't far from the truth, right? It was video player too. But yeah, yeah, yeah that's what but, I mean. Yeah. But Silverlight 3 was really the one where, hey, we can do cross-platform development, Mac and PC, yep. in C Sharp with XAML. Yep. That's pretty cool. And so it's, it's an important time mm. for .NET. And and definitely, we're all in the group. We're having a good time, right? Yeah. We're in the middle of 2009 now. 2009. So, it was Silverlight. Well, Silverlight 3 was huge by 2009. Silverlight 2 came out at the PDC in 08. Yes. And that was the one that supported .NET Framework 3.0. They went over to Intel only for the Mac. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Ray Ozzy is a guy inside Microsoft who really had a lot to do with Silverlight and also had a lot to do with the the kind of the undoing of it. Well, he was the cloud guy. You know, we, we've sort of breezed over an important thing when it comes to Ray Ozzy, which is this is when Bill is finally out of the company. He's yeah. off doing the foundation. Right. And, and Ray Ozzy is supposed to step into his role. And I don't know that it's even possible. Yeah. But one of the things that Ray did in 2008 at that PDC was he announced the first cloud. Yeah. For, for on the Microsoft space, right? AWS is already starting out. Right. But he is now talking about cloud and internet services. Yep. You know, that that's the beginning of all of that. Yeah. And uh, it's early days. Like, we still have a long way to go. But, you know, that's, the conversation started in 2008. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. They, they, he initially talked about that it's more along the lines of Microsoft has these many large internet properties all running on their own hardware in isolation. We need to consolidate them to be more efficient and be able to scale dynamically. And you should be able to use it at the same time. Right. Yeah. And so we, we get back to Silverlight 3, which comes out in the summer of 2009. It's been it's had three major updates in six months. Mm-hmm. And, you know, things are very good. Mm-hmm. Also in 2009, Windows 7. An amazing version of Windows. Yeah, and that's led by a new Windows leader. That's Steven Sanofsky, who came yep. from the office team. He took over from Jim Alchin. Alchin shipped XPSP2, and he got Vista out the door, and then he retired to go play guitar. You know, that may have been a good uh, time for him <laughs> to go play guitar. Well, I, I, in some ways, I feel like he fell on his sword for Vista. Yeah. 
Agreed. Was necessary to do, and there's many reasons about that. Maybe there's a whole other book to just dig into that in more detail, but yeah. that's certainly how all of that went down. Yep, yep. But he had a reputation for shipping software on time. Yes. And he was going to ship Vista no matter what. Well, and he did, yeah. but it had some consequences. Yep. Now, we get to 2010. Yeah. Now, 2010, we get the first version of Azure. This is called Windows Azure. Yes. It will change its name, but at that moment, it's called Windows Azure, and it runs .NET, Java, PHP, and there's a version of SQL to SQL Azure yep. right at the very beginning of that. Yep. And in March of 2010, one month later, the iPad comes out. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. The big iPhone has arrived. Yep. And of course, it didn't support plugins. Well, it did at first. But oh, really? within a month, Steve Jobs puts out his letter called Thoughts on Flash. Yeah. Now, under the hood, the truth is he could see that Flash was killing the iPad. It was murdering its battery. And so right. his explanation was, we're going to get rid of the plug-in model for Safari mm-hmm. uh, because it is a security violation, which is true, right? There's bad yep. things come in through these plugins, and it does impact the performance of the machine. Yeah. There was a workaround, right? There were other browsers and other tools you could use if you still wanted to run Flash and murder your iPad. That's but for not the average obviously I- an issue. For the, I mean, they they want people to use the out-of-the-box tools. They don't want to have people sure. to have to have a, another piece of software just to have a regular experience. Well, and that's certainly the whole point of Apple and the iPad especially was just what's the off-the-shelf options? That's right. what they want. Yep. And so it's April of 2010 where this comes out. Yeah. And internally to Microsoft, this is obviously a huge deal. But for mm. us out in the wild, it wasn't all that visible. I don't think we really realized that that was a sort of death knell for Silverlight at yep. that and, moment. And we we heard the rumblings of Silverlight is dead and, you know, we... That's not till the end of the year. Yeah, that's right. But in eight, because in April, we also got Studio 2010. Yeah. Right. So this is the CLR4. Uh, we get parallel extensions. We get mm. the first version of F Sharp. We get yep. Silverlight 4, which yep. now runs in Chrome as well as out of the browser. Like it is a beautiful time in it's the spring beautiful. of 2010 for right. Silverlight. We right. don't, it's like we're dead men walking. We just don't know we it. We just don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You know, the other thing that's important about 2010. Again, we're talking about the open source movement. 2010 was the version that shipped with jQuery. All right. Yeah. They included jQuery in the box. And that's a huge deal. That also starts creating the jQuery foundation, which will now is known as the JavaScript foundation. Like all of those forces happen there. Hmm. Yep. So that is the spring of 2010. Let's talk about the fall of 2010. This is the last PDC at the end of October in 2010. It was Mm. in Redmond. Mm. And there was only a thousand people there. I think you and I were there. Yep. Uh, and so was Mary Jo Foley. Yep. And we all noticed that uh, during that event that nobody talked about Silverlight. Yep. I mean, we just, we'd just been at the professional developers conference for Microsoft, didn't talk about Silverlight. Yeah. And it was MJ who tracked down Bob Muglia, Bob Muglia. and asked him, mm-hmm. why didn't you talk about Silverlight at your professional developers conference? Mm-hmm. And Bob says, quote, our strategy has shifted. Right. And this causes some consternation, shall we say. That's a very nice way to put it. Well, and we have been berated in comments for being casual about 
the the this situation with Silverlight. I mean, it's not like Silverlight mysteriously stopped working. No, it still works. In no, fact, of course. I use Silverlight code that you've written yeah. almost every day. Yep. I can only run it against IE these days, but you know. I can only run it in Firefox, but okay. Right. But the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, we said that right at, right at the beginning is that it's pretty obvious that because it doesn't run on the iPad and it isn't going to run on iOS devices in general, that, you know, the whole dream of a cross-platform write once, run anywhere uh, solution for C-sharp VBnet isn't going to happen at this time with Silverlight as we know it. But as we saw, you know, new things happened and took a long time, but uh, new things did happen. But Microsoft didn't do it very publicly. They actually did it very quietly. Yeah, they did. Uh, We didn't know what was going on. I think that was the biggest frustration. I think we went two years without Microsoft publicly saying a word about Silverlight. They never said it was dead. They never said anything. It wasn't until David Carmona put out a white paper positioning Microsoft development tools that that was the first mention of Silverlight after that little crazy press moment. Yeah. So if we fast forward a little bit to early of 2011, the big thing going on at this time, while we're all scrambling to figure out what the heck's happened to Silverlight, is the browser wars. Right. So you've got IE9, you've got Chrome, you've got uh, Firefox, the the JavaScript core slash Nitro. They're all trying to speed up the JavaScript engine. Chakra. That's right. Yeah. And they're all moving fast. They're shipping new versions all the time. Every time you close Chrome, it's updating itself like it's quite madness. Mm. But that really kicked off things like Node. Yep. You know, the, fir- the, the first version of Node.js we ever see is all going all the way back to 2009. Mm. But by 2011, when JavaScript is dramatically faster, its idea of an outside of the browser language is just not that crazy right. anymore. Right. It's, it becomes much more relevant. Yep. That leads us to, to the first build conference in 2011. Right. I remember we were at a party at Tim Huckabee's house the night before yes. the keynote. And we did a show on .NET Rocks. And we went around to, you know, RDs and MVPs. And we asked them what they thought the keynote was going to be about. What did, what did they right. think they were going to see? You know, what, what, you know, put your future prediction hat on. And some people got it uh, kind of right. But not a lot. No, no, because it was a surprise. It was I mean, a surprise. Build, it, it, this is in Anaheim. We were there. Yeah. And this is when they announced Windows 8 and the whole mm-hmm. tablification of Windows. Studio 2012. Didn't mention .NET very much. Didn't talk about .NET hardly at all. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting to note that this is also the time that the consent decree signed back in 20, 2001 ends. Yeah, right. But one of the big topics of conversation with Build, besides Windows 8, was WinJS. Right. Chris Sells was yes. a big guy in WinJS. And so the we, you and I, walked out of that Build conference going, wow, we make a show called .NET Rocks. Yeah. And they didn't I talk didn't, a lot about .NET. I didn't see any .NET in there. Right. And that's when I looked at Richard and said, we should do another show. We keep doing .NET Rocks, but we'll do another show and call it the Tablet Show and focus on mobile development, tablet development, um, even mobile uh, mobile web development because, you know, that has its place. Sure. And, and it was hard did. to talk about it on, uh, on .NET Rocks because it just wasn't about .NET at all. Right. It's interesting to realize, you know, we were doing this exclusionary thing because PDC 10 with Silverlight, where they didn't talk about Silverlight, suddenly Silverlight is dead. 
Yeah. Now we go to t- in 2011, a year later, they don't talk about .NET. What does this mean, right? What like does this we, mean? the trend is here, and it's scary. You yep. know, no two ways it about was. it for us. So we we changed. We definitely were hedging our bets with the tablet show. Right, and there was a whole bunch of new stuff to learn that wasn't .NET. You know, WinRT operating system just came out, and then they had their whole XAML stack that was new and different. Mm-hmm. And you had WinJS development, and you had stuff going on with Xamarin at the time. Which, right. Yeah, so there was just a whole bunch of non-.NET stuff. And we were still thinking of .NET, and it still was. It was a Windows technology back then. Sure. This is when Xamarin is formed, right? Yeah. When, when Novell sells to Attachmate, yeah. Attachmate says, stop development on Mono. Yeah. Miguel had actually in 2010 or 2009, 2010, got his first Mono touch for the iPhone. Yeah. And it, and it sure looks like it had derivatives coming out of Moonlight. Yeah. By 2011, he has it working for Android as well. Mm. And if you think about what was Build talking about, Build was talking about JavaScript is going to be the lingua franca. Yep. They're going to work against Windows 4 because it's the only language that works across all the platforms because C Sharp doesn't run on iOS and Android. Right. And here in 2011, Miguel is building a company off of running C Sharp on <laughs> iOS and Android. And Windows at the same time. At the same time, right? All yeah. those things at once. And so when we get to 2012, in September, we get the new version of Studio. Most mm-hmm. people remember the the Studio 2012 version as the version with the all caps menus and forget everything else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That was really Everybody's annoying. Everybody's a little freaked out about that. Yeah. I know. But it's also Microsoft made another important move in 2012, or the dev div did, which was when they started Microsoft OpenTech. And that's with yeah. Jean Pauly. We interviewed these guys, another yep. a group of guys whose specific job was to make sure that important open source projects worked well with Microsoft tooling. Right. And so they would make contributions to those projects so that they did run well inside a studio. And we're talking about Memcached and you know all these important open source projects. Right. That was and that was Microsoft OpenTech. Yep. And so finally, by the fall of 2012, one year later, we get our second build. This is when Win8 ships, WinJS becomes 1.0. They first mentioned TypeScript. Anders has left the C-sharp team. He's focused on this, uh, uh, on TypeScript, yep. which is interesting all by itself, the timing around all of that. Yeah. But also apparent is the App Store rolls out. Yeah. For the tablet, for, for Win8 tablets mm. and 80% of the apps in the store are C-sharp XAML. That's right. So as much as the intent had been to be big on JavaScript for all of that, it wasn't what was actually happening in the store. Yep, that's right. Turns out people like those Win32 apps, those C-sharp .NET apps. Yeah, and they, well, developers know how to build for it. So yep. I, I think that part of the goal of build was to win over a new set of developers to work on the Windows environment, and it didn't happen. The existing developers continue to work. So these were existing developers that had done WPF, had learned enough XAML to jump on the WinRT bandwagon, and then were writing uh, Windows 8 apps for the App Store for WinRT. Yep. But they were using C Sharp and .NET, because guess what? That's your market. Those are the people that you know. You don't know the JavaScript developers. These were the devs that were willing to work in the environment, right? Yeah. And your existing devs aren't going to switch over, and the... External devs never learned the new environment, so they they didn't they weren't interested. And all the JavaScript people who use you know the 
text pad of the day and don't use developer environments like Visual Studio said, no, thanks. Yeah, they just didn't do it. They just didn't. And Microsoft didn't enough. have the tooling for it. And you also, if you think back about those two builds, Microsoft was trying to act a lot more like Apple. They were keeping mm. everything a secret. And for us yep. as insiders, it was especially hard. They weren't telling us anything. It was very hard. So you were waiting for stuff to ship before you found out about it. And that had a big impact on em- enterprises. Enterprises won't touch software till they've thoroughly tested it. So then That's it, right. you're not going to have anybody on stage with you if you don't get them involved in advance. Yeah, we're and you're not going to have way. any apps if you don't have them involved in advance. Like it sort of became a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, if you don't engage with developers in advance to experiment with these tools, you're not going to have anything to show. And it's yep. what happened. And this is the gear shift on Microsoft, right? That that moment in 2012, yep. combined with what happened with Xamarin. That's really when it started to change, isn't it? Totally change. It's like the problem here is Windows, that we're too centric on Windows. So uh, one of the observations that we made on .NET Rocks was that um, the Windows team and the .NET team had been a little bit uh, had had misaligned incentives. In other words, the Windows team's job was to sell more copies of Windows. That's what they wanted to do. Sure. But how can you sell upgrades to Windows when people can run XP and just get the latest version of the .NET framework and run their .NET apps and everything works just fine? Right. So, you know, so in a sense, Steve Sanofsky kind of felt like um, you know, that that .NET was sort of holding back Windows upgrades. And, you know, after Sanofsky left, and you can, you're going to talk about this next, but after Sanofsky left and, you know, after Windows 10 came out, which I know I'm skipping way ahead, you yeah. know, they really forced upgrades to Windows 10 on everybody so that they could say everybody runs Windows 10. And, and that's how they got around that issue. But well, there's a lot of things. That, yeah, and they gave it away. And, a lo- and by the way, Colin Melia at Tim Huckabee's party before the original build said soon there's going to be free windows for everyone and he was right about that yep to, to a degree but anyway i skipped over a lot of stuff um yeah to to, to a certain amount i mean there was a the, the thing that was interesting about build 2012 was shortly after that steven sanasi left the company yeah. and the changes that happened to win eight for service pack one yeah. made it more sort of half win eight half win seven so it was, you know the start button came back things got a yeah. little more familiar and uh, we did get a new version of Studio in, tw- in 2013. It mm-hmm. mostly got rid of the all caps on the menu, so everybody relaxed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was also the first version that simply was not distributed on disk. You, yep. you got it via the internet. Yep. And uh, it it had the RT tooling in it. Like It sort of consolidated all of those features in 2013. It was a pretty thorough version. Yeah. But by the end of 2013, we have a new CEO. He yep. actually comes on board officially in February of 2014 when Satya Nadella takes over. And he was the real driving force between all this, the I would call it the glasnost of uh, of of Microsoft, really. Well, that's when we find out they built a version of Office for the iPad. They just never shipped it. Mm. Within a month of him being CEO, it's no longer Windows Azure; it's Microsoft Azure. Yep. And by April of 2014, so think about this: become CEO in, in February, mm. Microsoft Azure in, in March. First uh, build under Satya is in April. Mm. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. And what comes out in April of 2014 at that build event? The yeah. .NET Foundation with Xamarin in it. Yep. Rosalind ships, the yeah. C-sharp compiler ships, and is open source and cross-platform. <laughs> yeah. 
It's pretty amazing. And they and they announced that Windows is free for all devices with nine inch screens or smaller. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about the rest of it since. It's just gotten, you know, then Microsoft bought Xamarin. A couple years later. And uh, everybody's working towards this unified XAML that uh, we have yet to see, but that's definitely the direction we're heading. Definitely Sacha coming in marks the absolute point at which .NET becomes a moniker no longer for Windows technology, but it now is about open source multi-platform development. Although, I mean, in 2014, they just had C-sharp. They had not tried to move the framework over. And the framework, one would argue, is still in motion. It was only August of this year, of 2017, that we got Core 2, which seems to be fairly parity to the original .NET framework. Yeah, and and it took a long time to realize that, but certainly, you know, Sacha is marks the point at which that starts happening. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think the forces were already there, but mm. now the leadership matched yeah. it. Yeah. And that uh, has certainly accelerated things. Although, it, you know, now the debate is whether or not Microsoft is outrunning its customer. Mm. That we're, we're actually dealing with a situation where folks are still using traditional framework. Right. Traditional tooling. And they're only working in Windows. Yeah. And they just don't see a need for a lot of the Linux related stuff. It's not important to them. Well, I mean, if they're hosting, certainly performance is a very big lure and a big attraction to to running on Linux in a container. Um, Performance and overhead, you, you know, you can't beat it. Yeah, well, maybe we could. They just have to keep working on it. It could, yeah. they could still be faster. I think the container solution in the Windows world isn't all the way there yet. In the Linux world, it right. certainly is. Yeah, um, we're still seeing people. You know, we're still doing those shows, and folks are still confer- complaining and, and struggling with things. Right. But for, from Sadie coming on in 2014 to today, three and a half years later. Mm. Things have moved even faster. Yeah, I, I think have. it's kind of stunning to think about the amount of stuff that's happened. And I don't know that all of us have moved as quickly. Uh, it's challenging. And certainly, you know, when we talk to our guests, they are running ahead with a bunch of stuff and sort of helping us to show the way. Yeah. But it doesn't make it easier for the average listener to grab all of those bits. Well, my friend, we're 20 minutes over on this show, and I'm happy to say that it was worth it. This has been a, a, a great talk, and I know there's a lot more of the story, and there's a lot more to come, for sure. And we want to know what you think about all of this stuff. Go ahead and go to .netrocks.com, check out this show, number 1500, and leave a comment. Or you can leave it on the, our app, uh, which is on iTunes, uh, iOS, and Android, and uh, talk to us. Let us know what you think. I still have to write the book and I still have a ton more research to do. You know, we may have taken 80 minutes to do a quick overview here, but the book, you know, I want to spend a lot more time exploring the individuals that Mm. created the product and the sort of key inflection points. I want you to understand who they are so that you know why they make decisions the way they do. Fantastic. It's going to take some time, but I think it'll be a lot of fun. It's going to be great. And good luck with that, Richard. And we'll keep in touch with you about that from time to time. For sure. Well, thanks again, buddy. And thank you for listening, folks. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm